we know all too well what some Americans think about Mexico. But how do Mexicans view their own country? And what's it like living next to the USA? We have this kind of love-hate relationship to the United States. It's the powerful big brother up north. Coming up, one of Mexico's leading authors and social critics, Juan Vioro, returns to travel with Rick Steves for a candid perspective on today's Mexico. Ecologist Chris Morgan tells us where you can get close enough to a grizzly bear in Alaska to actually smell what they had for lunch. So you can find yourself sometimes within feet of these big brown bears when they're focused very much on fishing for salmon. And Marty Essen tells us how easy it is to spot wildlife in the Everglades. And something tells me to look down, and I look down between my legs, and right directly below me is this alligator, probably about six, six and a half feet, looking straight up at me. Get a close-up look at what's right next door. It's Travel with Rick Steve. Mexico can brag about its beauty, impressive history, great food, and friendly people. But when it comes to soccer, their passion for the sport is an ongoing national heartache. Mexican author Juan Vioro explains what we tend to get wrong about our amigos mexicanos and lets us in on what they're thinking about their own country. That's coming up a little later in the hour ahead. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're also joined by a pair of wildlife enthusiasts whose dedication to the natural world started at an early age. Wilderness photographer Marty Essen is a popular speaker on college campuses. He'll tell us in a bit about the wildlife he's seen up close from Alaska to Florida to Costa Rica. Chris Morgan has long been fascinated by bears. He's been documenting the habitat challenges bears are facing on every continent. You may have seen him hosting Bears of the Last Frontier on the PBS series Nature. Chris is now releasing his documentary Bear Trek to film festivals around the world. And he joins us on Travel with Rick Steves to explain why what's good for bears is good for people, too. Chris, we're glad to have you back. Thanks, Rick. I appreciate it. That phrase, what's good for bears is good for humans. How so? What's the deal? Wherever you find bears around the world, you find these wild, intact places. And those wild places usually have fresh water and natural resources and clean air and all of the things that we need. So... I did this back-of-the-envelope calculation once a few years ago and figured out if you take the eight bear species of the world and they live in some wild, wonderful places, and if you take the eight bear species, put them all together, if you protected their habitat, you'd protect almost a third of the Earth's land surface. Oh. So it just becomes a... So if you take care of the bears, you're going to take care of the environment, and that's taking care of us. Yeah. Save the bear, save the world, as we say. Ah. (laughs) But you have been so focused and fanatic about bears. You've traveled all over Canadian Arctic, Alaska, Peru, Borneo, studying bears. What is it about bears that that attracts you? I am mildly obsessed, yes. Yeah. You just love the whole notion of getting to know bears. You have a great respect for bears. You know, it started when I was 18, and I'm in my, let's say, mid-40s now. Mm -hmm. And so when I was 18, I just fell into this bear world by mistake in New Hampshire and started working with a bear biologist there. And I fell in love with their power uh, the sort of the, the romanticism around bears, their strength, and then mostly their intelligence. So over this last 25 years, I've just got to know bears in their environment from various places around the world, and I've grown to love them even more because there's just something about these creatures. Take us to any of these distant places. You must have great patience to actually be there and witness this, but what's a little moment that you were there, just a little mouse in the corner watching this wondrous world of the bear kind of family? that endeared you to bears? You know, I think one of the best places in the world to see bears is Alaska on the coast of Alaska there on the Alaska Peninsula. And there are thousands of bears there. And it's like stepping back in time. 
And I've sat there on my own and with small groups of people that I've guided and, and in recent years with film crews. And you just feel like you're the visitor. And in this one particular meadow that I go to every June, it feels like the love zone, as we've called it in the past, because there's a lot of bears around and they're all eyeing each other up. And the ladies are watching their competition and the males are watching their competition. And they're all trying to size each other up. And so you figure can tell out, there's flirt, there's courting oh, going that, on here. That Bear absolutely, courting. absolutely is. It's like watching action in a in a pickup joint of a bar in some ways. Incredible what these intelligent animals are going through, the thought process and the the decisions that they have to make to not just stay alive, but to procreate. procreate. And to, yeah. Yeah. So how do they flirt? So, well, they I mean, of, what's they, a very attractive female? You, you're into bears. <laughs> <laughs> I've given this a lot of thought, Rick. I yeah. bet you have. <laughs> <laughs> the females, well, they'll tend to look over their shoulder, pretending not to check out a male that's on the edge of the meadow. And as soon as the male looks at her, she'll sort of look down at the grass again, and it'll all be very, very coy and sweet and can't quite believe this coming from a grizzly bear, you know, but it happens all the time. You can actually see that. You it's can actually, really, you know what's going on. It's really difficult not to anthropomorphize their behavior yeah. to make them seem human-like because they very much are. And then a month later, they've all got their backs turned to each other and don't want to know each other, so it's just in the mating season. Oh, yeah. And then they can become very aggressive towards each other during the salmon runs, so... Every year they wait for these calories to swim upstream, and that's where they are, waiting at the riverbank. Now, do, and the, so, do the male bears show their virility in some way? Um, because you, in, in, in European folk dancing, I always think <laughs> European folk dancing is just medieval flirting, when they couldn't really talk to each other except yeah. when everybody's together. And you see the men showing off how high they can kick or something like this. That's and, interesting. And yeah. the girls are checking them out. I wonder if the bears do the same sort of display of virility. In some ways, you know, they do some very strange things that I wouldn't recommend. But, for, for example, they'll walk around in this kind of cowboy walk with their bow-legged front legs. And they'll press them down on the ground. And the, what they're doing is they're trying to rub their scent into the grass, into the meadows, so the females can come along and smell that they're interested and in the area and they're competing with other males. But at the same time, what they're doing is they're peeing on their paws. So the males will pee on their own paws and spread that scent around the meadow. Oh. As if to say, hey, I'm the king of the castle here. Yeah. You know, this you is can, my roost. You can mark things. I, yeah. I, that's a trick that we, we don't want to be inspired by. <laughs> You say there's like eight species of bear in the world, and mm -hmm. six of them are threatened with extinction. That's, that's yeah. a pretty desperate situation. What's the state of uh, bears just in general? In general, it really varies. You know, there are bears in Europe that are tiny in numbers in, in places like Italy and Spain, for example. But then there are, you know, even in Washington State, we have grizzly bears here. There might only be five or ten of them. But then you go further north, and there are potentially thousands of them in B.C. and in Alaska. So it depends where you're talking about. Uh -huh. But then there are less known species, like one of the species that we filmed in Bear Trek was sun bears in Borneo, the smallest bears in the world in one of the richest habitats there in the, in the Southeast Asian rainforest. Wow. And you never see them. There's How very small? little. How small is a full-grown? A large one would be 100 pounds, 150 so like pounds. A, like, a, like a dog. Yeah, yeah, like a big dog. Oh. So you hardly ever see them. They hide in these thick rainforests, but they're there. And, you know, saving them saves the forests of, of Borneo, and that's, that's one of the goals of It is of pretty track. fragile when a bear community gets down to several hundred. Yes, it really is. In some ways, some of these bears are, are the walking dead, you know, so we've got to do all we can to provide their habitat. And without providing for it, you could do a lot for the bears, but you've got to think fundamental wellness for bears is having the right habitat, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And having enough space. They right. need space. They need isolation in the, in the case of some bears. Right. Black bears, though, on the other hand, in North America are really much more adaptable. So okay. you can find them on the edges of town and, and not be too surprised to see them there. But grizzlies and, and others are a little different. One of the most amazing species we filmed was in uh, Peru. 
spectacle bears down there, and these were cliff-climbing bears that we'd heard about from a biologist. Cliff-climbing bears? Yeah, and they literally will scale these vertical walls to get to food treats on that wall. Our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is ecologist, wilderness guide, and conservationist Chris Morgan. Chris has posted clips from his video projects about bears, as well as wolves, elephants, Siberian tigers, lemurs, and even blue-footed boobies. It's on his website, chrismorganwildlife.com. His latest documentary is called Bear Trek. Chris, we always know black bears and brown bears and grizzly bears and polar bears. I mean, obviously we know a polar bear. What distinguishes the other bears that we know? You know, there's some little-known ones, like the sun bears that I mentioned in Borneo, and then there are Asiatic black bears, and they're rather like our black bears over here, but just a little different-looking, got these big fur ruffs around their faces and shoulders. And there are, you know, perhaps the most iconic bear in the world, the giant panda. The panda, is it endangered or thriving? Yeah, it's endangered, yeah. There's only just over a thousand of them left in the wild in these mountain ranges in China, so they need all the help that they Do can get. Do you get to the point where the reality on this planet is it's only going to survive with human help in zoos? I hope not. I hope that seems like a horrible thing. I hope we're smarter than that. You know, I mean, it's been proven time and time again that if you just give them half a chance to give them enough space and don't shoot them and don't get into conflict with them, don't let them eat garbage, don't let them get close to humans where that can lead to trouble, then bears will do the rest. They don't need much, and I I think we owe that to them. Chris, you spend a lot of time looking at bears, and you go to great lengths to get close to the bears and study them and film them. Do you ever find that your enthusiasm puts you in a situation where you're in danger? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so what, what's the, what, are, what are your limits and, and what do you have to be careful? You know, it's funny because I always, I teach bear safety classes and I'm always telling people not to get close to bears. But in certain parts of the world, it's a normal part of everyday behavior in the bear world. So this is the case in one, one corner of Alaska where I've spent a lot of time over the last 15 years. And they, they are very sociably tolerant with each other and they seem to extend that tolerance. They're predisposed to being tolerant to humans as well. So you can find yourself sometimes within feet of these big brown bears when they're focused very much on fishing for salmon or mm. paying attention to the local lady that's just walked into the scene mm. you know, on the, in, in the love zone of the meadows. And mm. it's really quite remarkable that they allow that to happen. And, it, and it's, it's often really life-changing for people, you know, to have that experience. Oh, I talk about life-changing. The highlight of my Alaska cruise was in a kayak at a, where a river was tumbling into the bay. And there was a bear just in his own little happy world. And he was just pawing at all these salmon in about two feet of water. Mm. And he was surrounded by frolicking salmon. And every few minutes, he'd grab a salmon and pull it up, and then he would walk over to the bluff in the sun, and he'd sit there, and he'd just munch on that salmon. Then he'd go back into the little bay, and he'd grab another one. And just to be there watching was something otherworldly about it. I felt like I was. I felt like I'd gone through some kind of a Alice in Wonderland door, and I was there in this pristine natural world that you don't even hope to see as a human being. I love that description. That's exactly what it is. It's otherworldly, and it takes you somewhere else. It takes you somewhere primal and Mm. sets off synapses in your brain that you're not used to having triggered, you know. It's really amazing. At the same time, I I felt like he was just like completely in his own world, but Hmm. in the back of my mind, I wondered, what if he saw us? Would he just kind of ignore us, or would he go away, or would he be threatened by us? Mm -hmm. It depends on the bear, you know, and I always tell people, any two bears are as different as any two people. They're all smart enough to have their own personalities. And I think, you know, looking at bears in those types of environments, we can't take those places for granted. You know, I I go back home to Britain, um, my homeland, and I hike in the Scottish Highlands, and you know when you're in grizzly bear country, you're supposed to shout. 
make lots of noise so you don't surprise the bear. So I find myself ah. in the Scottish Highlands just by habit. <laughs> hey, bear. And of course, there haven't been bears there for a thousand years, but <laughs> there's something missing in the Scottish Highlands, and it's yeah. those bears. There's something not wild about it, and the same in many corners of the world. So where we do have those wild pockets, I'm trying my best to highlight them and, and make sure they stay there. When you have this notion that what's good for bears is good for people, and when, when we lose a, a certain species of bear or a, a population of bear in a certain part of the world, We've really lost something and hard to get that back. If somebody wants to make a difference, what do they do? Well, they can follow us on Facebook for a start. Mm -hmm. My notion is that we're all in this together, you Mm -hmm. know. So that's Chris Morgan Wildlife on Facebook? That's right, yeah. Mm -hmm. If we are all in this together on this tiny planet floating around this universe, then, you know, if we can't save these wild places that not just bears depend upon, but but we do as well, then there's not much hope for us, is there, you know. So, but we need tools. We need to be able to say, save the bears, save the world. Simple things that we can all understand and all act on. So writing to your senators, making your voice heard, everyone has a voice. And in this day of electronic communication, there's no excuse not to sign on somewhere and make your voice heard. All right. Chris Morgan, best wishes with your work to raise awareness of the fragility and the importance of our bear populations. Thanks for all your work on PBS Nature, and we'll look forward to your next work. Thank you, Rick. We'll get a special insider view of life in Mexico in just a bit on Travel with Rick Steves. Up next, Marty Essen shows us what you'll find when you go to extremes in America's wilderness refuges from the Arctic to the Everglades. We're at 877-333-7425. When wilderness photographer Marty Essen camps out, he tries to look at his surroundings from the point of view of the birds and animals who call it home. Since he last joined us on Travel with Rick Steves, Marty's been visiting Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and the Florida Everglades. He wanted to get an up-close look at two magnificent environments whose wildness is under threat. His new book from these adventures is called Endangered Edens. Marty, thanks for joining us. Well, hey, thank you so much for having me on your show, Rick. You must absolutely love nature. You spent three years traveling around and just collecting it and reporting on it now. What's the secret to appreciating nature? Because a lot of us appreciate art and history, but we kind of are almost not blind to nature, but that's just kind of incidental. I guess it's just been something I've always been interested in. I always tell people it happened when I was about eight years old. Uh, For a couple years, I lived in Fort Collins, Colorado, and I had a friend whose father was a zoologist. Mm-hmm. And uh, down in the basement, they had all these animals. They had Gila monsters and rattlesnakes and all these creepy crawly things. Yeah. And of course, we were forbidden to go down there. And, and that's all you need to do is tell an eight-year-old that you can't go down in the basement. Oh, so, of and course, all those creepy crawlies sort of inspired you yeah, to reach so, out and appreciate them across the planet. Exactly. In my books, I talk about all different types of wildlife, but I, I do have this special love for animals that aren't you know, ne- necessarily warm and cuddly. I'm, I'm paging through your book here, Endangered Edens, and you just wouldn't want to take too many of these animals to bed with you. No. Okay. It's basically four chapters, one on the Arctic uh, up in Alaska, one on Florida Everglades, one on Puerto Rico and Costa Rica. Let's just talk for a little bit about okay. that. Well, why did you choose these four areas? Well, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge was a natural for me because... I'm really big on conservation, mm-hmm. and it's one of the most, what I say, the, one of the most endangered Edens, certainly in the Western Hemisphere. Your wife said, looking out the airplane window, Deb said, this is the best in-flight movie ever, and she's just looking out the window. Well, that was, uh, that was the flight up there. The flight up to the Arctic Refuge is one of the most dangerous but most scenic flights you could ever be on, because 
uh, what we did is we flew from Montana up to uh, Fairbanks, Alaska. And then you get on a small, basically a bush plane, a a single-engine bush plane. And we're heading north, and you have to go over the Brooks Range Mountains. And where you're heading is you're heading toward the Arctic Ocean. So you've got Mm -hmm. the wind from the Arctic Ocean blowing into the face of the airplane. And I'm sitting in the co-pilot seat, and I've got headphones on, and I'm listening to my pilot talk to another pilot who had dropped some other people off from our group in the Arctic Refuge before we got there. And he says to my pilot, he says, I almost ran out of engine. And I turned to the pilot and asked him, (laughs) what does that mean? He said, well, there was so much wind that the airplane almost stalled. He almost didn't have enough power to get over the mountain. So So you got over the mountain, and then you come down into this natural kind of wonderland. Right, you come into the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which is very flat. Your plane leaves you there? Yeah, and and you land. the, The plane has special balloon tires, so it doesn't hurt the tundra. And you land on the tundra. Because you don't have an airstrip, but you just land on the tundra with these big boom, 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 yeah. rubber, rubber wheels. And they have a special place where they land okay. so that they're not landing all over the place because it probably does a little bit of damage. But we want to keep that as little as possible. Okay, Marty, tell me, George, just how desolate is it? How quiet is it? What's it like? Because I've never been in a situation it, that's that completely it, in, the, in the middle of the it, It's really, it, you get a special feel there. First of all, we were there right before summer solstice, so the sun does not set. The the whole idea is, and we hit it exactly at the right time, you want to get there after the snow has melted, Uh but before the the mosquitoes come. It's flat, but then there's wildlife all over the place. Uh, We saw grizzly bear. There are birds everywhere. You know, the birds that we see here in the main part of the United States, in the lower 48 states, they go up there, and that's where they have their babies. The tundra, to me, is something that's kind of um, evocative or mysterious. And you've got a photograph of a, a buddy of yours sleeping just right on the tundra. Sleeping on the tundra. What is, it? is it like a big um, frozen sponge, or what does it feel it's, like? It is kind of spongy. It's very difficult to walk on. Mm-hmm. And you see this flat land, and sometimes it rolls a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it looks like, oh, I can just walk over there. And you have to be real careful because there are these uh, tussocks of grass. And if you step on them wrong, you could sprain an ankle. Mm-hmm. But what's your favorite moment with some wildlife in the Arctic in Pitt, Alaska? Uh, oh, the favorite moment, I think, was a grizzly bear. We were hiking along the side of one of the few hills there, and this grizzly bear came right toward us wow. and kind of just basically ignored us and just kind of went right by us. You didn't right want your us. trail mix or anything like that? No, no, n- nothing like that. And we had the same thing that happened with the red fox. This red fox we're watching as it's hunting, nice. and it's zigzagging toward us, and it just ignores us and goes right on by. So Everglades is next. Now, that seems almost the complete opposite of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. I mean, now you're in a, like a humid swamp. Oh, yeah, it is very, very teeming with with wildlife, both birds, swamp life, thick vegetation. Yes. Yes, all of that. You could get so close to the wildlife there. I mean, I, there were times I'm literally sitting five feet away from a, a 10-foot-long alligator. How do you explore the Everglades? What are your options? Do well, you take a tour uh, to get on one of those fan boats? You can certainly do that. I didn't do that. There, there's a lot of... If you, Once you get down there, I went down to Everglades City, uh-huh. and once you get to Everglades City, you can certainly get on one of the fan boats or whatever. But what I did is there's this road called the Loop Road, near Everglades City. You can take this road. It's just a little dirt road, and it kind of just goes off into the Everglades. Not many people know about it. 
you just basically drive partway and then you get out. And at least I got out and I walked. Mm-hmm. And there were bird life on both sides of the road, very, very close. Uh, there's egrets. So you've seen a lot of places, but I can just see by the energy in your face, these Everglades are really exceptional. Oh, I love the Everglades. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Marty Essen, and his new book is Endangered Edens, exploring the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, Costa Rica, the Everglades, and Puerto Rico. And Lynn's calling from London in England. Lynn, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Uh, I happen to be from Miami, and I also work for the airline, so I just went home to see my parents, and I decided I wanted to go to the Everglades because I've never been there before. And I went to Shark Valley. And it sounds like that road that you were on. And Uh I would like to know how you kept out of harm's way. Because when I was there, there were alligators. And they were floating on top of the water. Some were sunning themselves on the grass. And I was too stupid at the time, I read about it afterwards, that they could run faster than a horse. Oh, yeah, they're very fast. Faster than a horse? I don't know about fast. (laughs) I don't know that I would go that far. I don't think they can go faster than a horse, but they're fast. But they can move it out. Yeah. Yes. They can move fast, and I just didn't know. They look very well fed, and I read afterwards they eat at night, but then you hear the stories of things that happen in the daytime, and I was stupid. But you do this for a living. How do you keep out of harm's way? Well, you know, I've worked with reptiles and amphibians most of my life, and so I, at least I feel like I'm good at reading them. And there is one time uh, where, and I have a picture in my book where I'm sitting next to an alligator. Now, I wouldn't recommend anybody else do this, but, yeah. and it took me a while to do it. You got to gain its confidence. And I'm watching it the entire time to see, you know, is it going to be aggressive? Is it going to, how is the alligator feeling about this? But it can be yeah. very mellow and suddenly change personality. Yeah, I guess there's a little risk, but uh, that's kind of what makes the book exciting and, and, and makes an wow. adventure as well. I hope you're saving all your writing as you go. <laughs> <laughs> Lynn, Lynn, how close were you to an alligator? You're close. They even go on the road. Yeah, Marty's got a photograph in his book of this. What's it? has got a name. He's Larry. I, I Larry named him the, Larry. Larry, yes, Larry, right, Larry. Larry the alligator. And he's just lounging on a two-lane highway. What I love is this photo, Marty, you've got of an alligator. Just his head is floating like a lily pad in a pond, uh-huh. and it's so camouflaged. The head it looks just like all the, the, the twigs and everything floating. The story behind that alligator photo was really was kind of fun. If I was at a um, pond, and the pond had a little bit of a bank to it, maybe about a foot high. Right. I'm standing at the very edge of the bank, and I'm photographing a bird on the other side of the pond. And something tells me to look down, and I look down between my legs, and right directly below me is this alligator, probably, he wasn't huge, probably about six, six and a half feet, looking straight up at me. And so I aim my camera down, so I've got this picture of this alligator looking straight up at me, and I took about two shots before the alligator uh, slapped its tail and then took off to yeah. the other side of the pond. But it was, it was an amazing thing to see an alligator that close. That's how close they were in Shark Valley. They really were. Yeah, and okay, Shark Valley. All right. Hey, Lynn, well, thanks for your call, and I'm, uh, I'm glad you don't have any alligators to worry about in, in London there. <laughs> <laughs> they do have foxes. In the, in the moat, in the moat at the tower there, yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Marty Essen combines wildlife photography with adventure travelogues and environmental education in his latest book about threats to Anwar and the Everglades. It's called Endangered Edens, and recently won a National Indie Book Award for Excellence. 
Marty's presentation, Around the World in 90 Minutes, is popular on college campuses, and he posts his speaking schedule at martyessen.com. Marty, we've got another call. Patrick's on the line in Indiantown, Florida. Patrick, thanks for your call. Have you been to the Everglades? Oh, yes, many times, because I live in South Florida, so very easy to get to. What, what is your take on the Everglades? Is, is it something that is easy to appreciate, would you say? Yeah, and I, I would say anybody that comes down here like a vacation to go to the beach, it's not very far at all. I mean, to go to the Everglades National Park from Miami is, I guess, a half-hour drive, maybe 45 minutes. Must be one of the unique natural wonders in the entire United States if somebody's looking for memories. Mm-hmm. What's your take on the um, the stress that human tourism and so on puts on the Everglades? Yeah, that was my question for maybe Marty. Is is there a stress from tourism, or is the stress mostly from agriculture and um, industry? Well, you know, it is interesting the tourism question, and it's something I deal with as a writer. You know, do I want to tell somebody about this, whatever great place I'm visiting? Because, you know, if people start going there, well, maybe it's going to get ruined because there's too many tours. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I think people, once people see something and they like it and they appreciate it, they want to protect it more. So I kind of look at it that way. I think the biggest stress with the Everglades is the potential of what could be happening with global warming because the Everglades are very, very low and it's fresh water. But is it close to sea level? Yeah, basically at sea level. Oh, my goodness. So that is a freshwater environment. So if salt came in... Salt water comes in there. You know, it's not like an alligator can all of a sudden become a saltwater crocodile, or it's not like the the egrets can drink salt water. So that's something I I think as global warming gets worse, if we don't do something, Mm -hmm. that's going to be one of the first areas we're going to see in the United States that's really affected. And probably just a small amount of rise will have an impact. Exactly. It's already at sea level, essentially. Yeah, it's definitely very, very fragile. All right. Patrick, thanks for your call. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Marty Essen. His book is Endangered Edens. Marty, we just have a few more minutes, and I want to talk about Puerto Rico and Costa Rica, the the other two chapters in your book. Thinking about Puerto Rico, I was struck by the photograph of cactus right by the sea. That was such an interesting... because you know, I don't ever... I've never seen that really before. I haven't either. It was the Guanica Dry Forest. Yeah, it was such an interesting thing to see this desert. Desert going right up to the ocean. 90% of the people that go to Puerto Rico, they just go to San Juan and, and do their sightseeing there. Yeah, but and, clearly, you got out, and it's a wonderland for naturalists. Well, yeah, you know, you've got the one side where everybody goes. You go to the opposite side of the island. It's, it's laid back. It's quiet. So what threatens the natural habitat in Puerto Rico? I think Puerto Rico, it's overpopulation. There are 3.6 million people that live in Costa Rica. In, With in some Puerto serious Rico. economic problems. Yeah. So when push comes to shove, they might uh, compromise the environment yeah. in favor of people's needs. Yeah. You know, wherever you have humans encroaching, the animals always seem oh. to lose out. And Puerto Rico, it was kind of one of my funny stories in the, in the book, is we stayed at the Ritz-Carlton which is this beautiful, ritzy hotel. Uh-huh. And yet there in the Ritz-Carlton, in the courtyard, we were finding coquet frogs. And it was really kind of funny because everybody's all dressed up. It's a very ritzy place. I happen to be staying there, not because I normally stay in a place like that, but because through my credit card company, I got some free passes for three free nights at, at the uh, Ritz-Carlton. But looking for these coquet frogs. They're and, cute and, little frogs. Yeah, they're cute little frogs. They're one of the few frogs that does, never is a tadpole. They go directly from egg to frog. So it's at night, and my wife and I were going through the, the bushes looking, and this woman comes up to us. She says, 
did you lose something? I said, no, we're looking for cocaine frogs. And she says, what? There are animals there? Oh, and she goes and takes off. And it was just, now, did, but, but you could find wildlife everywhere. And you also found snakes eating bats. That was really my main reason for going to Puerto Rico. To me, it was one of the animal wonders of the world. We hiked out to Colorbrone's Cave, and we could only get in through the university, uh, and they're doing research there. And we arrive late at night, and rain is coming down. It's dark out, and all of us, all these thousands upon thousands of bats come out of the cave, and holding onto the side of the cave, onto the sheer rock face, are these six-foot-long Puerto Rican boas. Waiting and for dinner. Waiting for dinner. It, it was a snake fast food joint. <laughs> and and so you were there with your camera. I was there with my camera, and I got some great pictures of these boas just snapping snake out. Snake fast and, and food, grabbing, a buffet. Yeah, grabbing. Out of the bat bar. It was great. Finally, Costa Rica. Now, I found it very interesting. You, you sort of, true confessions. You said you were sort of exhausted after writing this first book, and you didn't know if you had another book in you, and then you went to Costa Rica. And then it changed. Yeah. What, what was it about Costa Rica that revitalized you? Well, it was just, I love Costa Rica. A lot of Americans are going down there and moving down there, and I can see why. I mean, it's just a great place. Now, I did Costa Rica a little different than a lot of people. A lot of people will explore a lot of the country. This is the, the one trip that my wife and I did where we stayed in one place. Uh, we went to this little place where we rented a cabin. You can only get there by boat, so there are no people around. And we basically explored this tract of rainforest for a week. And it was like we were talking about before about animals with camouflage. That was the great thing about being in Costa Rica and staying in the same spot. We'd hike the same areas and each day we would see more and more wildlife that we wouldn't have seen the first or the second day because our eyes weren't yet accustomed to it. Everywhere you look, there's fertility. Yeah. The the plant life there was amazing. The monkeys were amazing. The reptiles and amphibians were amazing. I, I just love Costa Rica, and it's one of the greenest countries in the world. What is Costa Rica doing right that other nations well, could learn? what they've done is they've taken 25% of their land, and they put it aside for conservation. And, you know, one of the ways they were able to do this is they got rid of their military about 50 years ago. And it seems kind of interesting that you can have a country without a military. They can put money into conservation. They can put money into education. Hmm. Uh, their literacy rate is almost the same as the United States, just a little teeny bit less. Mm-hmm. Uh, their life expectancy of, of the residents of Costa Rica is exactly the same as the United States. So you have a country that is capitalizing on being green. And being peaceful. Being green and being peaceful. And, and it's actually good for the economy. It's great for the economy. In El Salvador, it's just the opposite. Yep. They've got a lot of military expense. They've, they've raped their environment, and they're paying the price for it. Uh-huh. And Belize is kind of doing a lot of close to what Costa Rica is doing. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Marty Essen about uh, his book, Endangered Edens. Of all of this loving of nature that you've done, Marty, and, and with your wife working on, on these projects... Uh, just can we close with with your idea about the biggest lesson we can learn when we get close to nature and, and we really take a moment to appreciate it? Well, the biggest lesson, I think, is just get out there and enjoy and then try to protect it. You know, it, it always seems that when you have industry versus the environment, you know, people always say, well, let's find middle ground. And middle ground always seems to be on the side of industry. And we need to protect these places I want these places to be, one of the reasons I wrote this book is, is, you know, is I want these places to be here in the same form they are for my son and for my granddaughter and maybe whoever, you know, my great-granddaughter if I have that. And, and I want those people 
to be able to enjoy the same same things that I'm seeing now. Marty Essen, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much, Rick. It's been great to be on your show. Where the spirit grows and it never dies Where the west wind blows and the jack leaves. One thing outsiders often notice about many people in Mexico is an ability not to take themselves too seriously. Unless, that is, you're talking about El Football. Up next, Juan Vioro joins us for an entertaining and provocative insider guide to life in Mexico. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It seems everybody has an opinion about their neighbors, and many Americans, even those who have never been there, seem to have plenty to say about Mexico. Apart from the names of some resort towns, most of us don't really know very much about our neighbor to the south, how it works, or how the people in Mexico view their own country. For an insider view, Juan Vioros back with us now on Travel with Rick Steves. He's a leading author and social critic in Mexico City. He has a reputation for having an outrageous sense of humor, and his stories take on topics like machismo, corruption, and even the love-hate relationship Mexico has with its soccer teams. The first English translation of one of his novels will be out soon. His publisher is calling The Reef a satirical, vaguely dystopian crime story set at a resort in the Caribbean. Juan joined us recently while on a speaking tour as he was promoting the English-language release of a collection of short stories called The Guilty. Juan Viaro, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you so much, Rick. What is your hope for an, an American who reads your book, The Guilty? Well, you know, when you think about another country, you always have misconceptions. I grew up in Mexico in the 60s, and of course I had a strong influence from rock music and the counterculture of uh, America. And uh, once I met a guy who was going to San Francisco, and I asked him to bring me hippie uh, pins And I was surprised when I received these pins that one of them had uh, the legend, God is alive and well in Mexico City. So for me, growing up in Mexico and hearing Bob Dylan music and Grateful Dead and so on, I thought that America was the land of flower power and the land of freedom. And suddenly I realized that uh, Vietnam uh, uh, dropouts, they wanted to be in Mexico because for them, Mexico was a land of peace and freedom. So you have misconceptions about countries and uh, my short story collection the guilty addresses some of these misconceptions. Juan, when I fly into Mexico City, it's one of the most incredible, awe-inspiring sights I've ever seen. I mean, the, the buildings just sprawl forever. I've, I've, I've never seen anything like it. And flying in at night, it's like a galaxy below me. Give me just sort of a, a sense uh, of the complexity of Mexico City. You can say that in itself, our city, Mexico's capital, is an assembly of different cities. There are Uh, more than 2 million Indians living in Mexico City, and they speak some 60 languages. At the same time, there's an important Jewish community, an Arab community as well, and we have a strong influence from Spain, 
and of course it's a modern and postmodern city so it's a city made out of layers of different historical moments so for example if you go to downtown mexico to the main square in the city called el zocalo and if somebody has to and make a hole in this place for example to put a telephone lines or something of the sort you will immediately find the remains of an Aztec pyramid so we know that underground uh, there is another civilization and on the surface is the spanish capital with colonial buildings and then on in the outskirts of the city you have a place that uh, resembles Silicon Valley in one part of the city and shanty towns and terrible places uh, with no names so uh, we have this kind of contradictions all over Mexico City This is Travel with Rick Steves we're talking with Juan Vioro and his book is The Guilty our phone number is 877-333-7425 and Lauren's calling in from Boise in Idaho Lauren thanks for your call have you have you had a personal experience in Mexico I have. I Buenos Dias. I actually Buenos dias. got an opportunity to drive from Anchorage, Alaska, down the uh, Pan American Highway to uh, Mexico City. I got a scholarship, which I call a beca, and I attended the University of Mexico City for one year, and I enjoyed it a lot. And why did you enjoy it? Well, there was a lot of things to do. I did a lot of travel. There was a lot of hard work. Of course, I had to maintain a good grade point average. But it was just so much to do down there. I was always going somewhere. I got a chance to meet the Tarahumara Indians in the Copper Canyon. I got a chance to go to Chichen Itza and, and see the sacrificial well. Mm. I got to go to uh, places like Carretero, which is one of the, I think, the quintessential towns of Mexico. It's just, it's so old Mexico. Of course, we're talking a few years ago, but there's always something to do there. There's always pyramids to climb uh, just inside Mexico City, just outside of Mexico City. If a person's into archaeology and, and looking at really old stuff. Oh, the, uh, the, the pyramids just outside yeah. of Mexico City are mind-boggling. It's, uh, it's one of my favorite uh, memories of travel anywhere, sitting on top of one of those pyramids just looking out. Hey, Lauren, you'd, you've, uh, like me, you've done a lot of the, the obvious things from a tourist point of view. What was your experience as far as getting away from the tourist? Uh, do you feel comfortable when you're away from the tourist? Does it become more frustrating and complicated, or does it become more rewarding? Oh, it's much more rewarding for me. I, I don't know about anyone else, but for me, it's much more rewarding to stay away from the tourists. I went to Cancun, and, you know, it was okay. But then when I went to a place called Veracruz, it was so much, there was no tourists. It was just really quiet. The wind was blowing. It was very safe there. Like, you get around the border towns where all the tourists are, you find the crime. You go, whenever you find the tourists, you find the high crime area. Hmm. So I stayed away from all those, and I just, I had nothing bad happen to me all the time I was down there. I suppose if you're going to bump into somebody who's, whose occupation is ripping off tourists, uh, those kind of people will hang out in the Zona Rosa and where the tourists are. And uh, if you get away from that, you're more likely to find people that see you as part of the party instead of somebody who they can just rip off. Juan, do you have any ideas on, uh, on uh, smart travel as far as getting away from the crowds and being safe? 
Well, for me, the most useful advice is to avoid the tourist zones. For example, Cancun, as Lauren was aptly saying, is like a theme park for tourists. So everybody's trying to ripping off uh, tourists. And it's not a a nice place because the sea is beautiful, but then you have all these buildings that resemble Vegas. So it would be more interesting to try to go to normal Mexico and to try to mingle with uh, the society. And one thing I would advise is to learn some words in Spanish. That would be very important. So uh, there are many American tourists who tend to travel there, but to go from one holiday inn to another, and it's like staying in the States, but with pyramids. So (laughs) I think the best advice is to try to understand it's a different country and try to live a little bit like the local people. Good advice. Hey, Lauren, thanks for your call. Thank you. Have a good day. Okay, bye now. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Juan Vioro, and Juan's new book is the English translation of his collection of short stories, The Guilty. Juan, when I read your book, I realized, boy, in Mexico, soccer is almost like a religion. Uh, you yes, even refer to the, the round god, el football. Uh, can you talk about the importance of soccer in Mexico? Well, Mexico is fond of soccer, uh, but the soccer god is not fond of us. <laughs> so we, we have a, a weak team, but we have an extraordinary public for soccer venues. So we think that the biggest spectacle in soccer is not what is happening in the field, uh, in the pitch, but is what is happening all around the field. So the main attraction is public itself, because we have a wonderful passion for a sport in which uh, we are not very good. And Mm. that remains a mystery. So uh, in this sense, it's like religion, because it's an act of faith. You, You think that sometime a miracle is going to happen, and you are trying to deserve that miracle through your own passion. So if you go to a game in Mexico, you are going uh, to see passionate people supporting something that lacks uh, confidence in itself, which is our national team. So Mexico is not unlike the New York Yankees, famous for winning, but Mexico has a strong spirit. You must have some rivals within Latin America that we in the United States might not be tuned into. What's sort of the the rivalries? Who's the powerhouse in Latin America, and, and who are the... like the New York Mets that try hard but don't make it? Well, you know, the Argentinians are very, very good, and they have two very important teams, River Plate and Boca Juniors, and, of course, uh, Brazil. Brazil is the land of the the, Mm -hmm. the magic of uh, soccer. So those are the the biggest countries. But, you know, in in recent years, there are another very, very strong teams for example, uh, Chile's national team is great. They are the current owners of the Copa America, which is the America World Cup, because the states and, and also Canada are involved in, the, in this competition. And Uruguay has always been a, a mm-hmm. strong team. There are, there are a lot of very, very strong national teams. Colombia is progressing a lot. Is the United States seen as hopelessly uh, losing, or do they have some respect among Latin American teams? Well, you know, being a Mexican is terrible because our dictator, Porfirio Diaz, he uh, used to say, poor Mexico, so far away from God, so close to the United States. So uh, we have this 
kind of love-hate relationship to the United States. It's the powerful big brother up north. <laughs> so whenever we play against the states, uh, we try to win so effortly that we tend to lose because we, we really, really want to win, we get <laughs> nervous. And, and it's so the players that used to play very well, they, they become wild players and so on. And, oh, that's and you, funny. And, yes, and you know, when we play here in, in America, in all the stadiums, we play as a local team because the stadiums are filled by Mexican Chicanos. So you have the people here, many of them, they have no legal papers. So if the Border Patrol goes to one of these games, he could, they could arrest many Mexicans there. Uh, <laughs> don't, te don't tell Donald Trump, but that's true. <laughs> Our guest Juan Vioro is often called one of today's most important authors and social commentators in Mexico. A collection of his short stories called The Guilty has been translated into English and is now available in the U.S. and Canada. You can also hear what Juan Vieiro thinks about the ways European soccer teams reflect their own national cultures. That's in an online extra to this week's show. Look for it in this week's program notes in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Juan, we were talking about uh, soccer being like a religion in Mexico, but there also is another religion that's close to the hearts of Mexicans, and that is Roman Catholicism. And uh, Pope Francis visited uh, earlier this year, and he seemed to have been as popular as John Paul II when he visited What's the news with the uh, Mexican uh, embrace of Roman Catholicism, and uh, how is Mexico dealing with the scandals that the church is dealing with lately? We have a, a strong following in Mexico um, related to Catholicism. We are the second largest Catholic country in the world after Brazil. So the visit of the Pope Francis was very, very important to many people in Mexico. And of course, the government, they, they tried to make propaganda for themselves. And the Pope addresses some very important issues because our church uh, has been a traditional church and has tried to cover sexual scandals inside the church. And there was a very important message from the Pope to say, you don't have to behave as lords of the church. You have to follow the people. You belong to the people. And the Mexican people start with the original inhabitants of that world, the Indians, the Indios, the Indians. So that was a very important message. And the Pope went to Chiapas. You know, in 1994, the Zapatista upheaval uh, became very uh, famous because uh, the Indians, they organized themselves to fight uh, for their rights. And so he met people related to this movement, which is a leftist movement, but it has uh, strong links with the progressive priests who belong to the theology of liberation. So it was a very interesting uh, visit. I think this is going to have some follow-up inside the Mexican church. We expect some changes there. And the message of Pope Francis, I think it was very, very important to many people in, in the country. In Mexico, is there still a dynamic of liberation theology on one side and what I consider escape theology on the other side, where you just uh, relax and accept the unjustness in your life today because everything will be okay when you get to heaven? Is there still that tension? Yes, there is. And, uh, you know, when... Uh, John uh, Paul, the Pope, went to Mexico. He tried to 
protect uh, this kind of escape theology, as you aptly mm -hmm. put it. And now Mexican Catholic community is expecting some changes mm. and because it's very important to to have a modern church more open to the real and social problems of a country like Mexico. Could you say if one pope was more sympathetic with escape theology and one was more sympathetic with liberation theology, John Paul II would have been the more conservative escape theologian and Pope Francis would be more sympathetic with liberation theology, which works for social justice? Yes, it is. And it's a matter of survival for the church. I mean, it's liberation theologies maybe went too far away from the mm -hmm. church because it's important to understand that the pastoral duties of somebody who belongs to the church, these duties, they are not only inside the liturgy, they have to address social issues outside in the streets, mm. in the fields and wherever. But maybe liberation theology went too far away and they were supporting guerrilla movements. Yeah, and Pope Francis would, would be making it a little, a little more reasonable. A more reasonable, of course, yeah. and I mean, he, he's a master of equilibrium, no? Mm. And, well, he's, he's trying to modernize church uh, without destroying uh, the church. That's a very uh, interesting dance. You have to, a very delicate dance. Exactly. As a traveler, if you want to feel the passion and, and the heritage of the Catholic Church in Mexico, what would we do? What would be a good tip for, for understanding that? Well, it would be very understanding to attend the Mass at Santo Domingo in the core of Mexico City. It's a wonderful Baroque church, and there you can find some priests that are very interesting. For example, priest Juan Pablo, who used to be a close friend of Luis Buñuel, the filmmaker. And uh, here you have a, a Dominican priest who is very well read in uh, literature and who has done films himself. And he was the confessor of Luis Buñuel, who was a famous atheist. But sometimes even atheists, they do need a confessor. So if you attend Mass, you are going to see a very, very interesting combination of ancient Catholic rituals and uh, the new rhetoric of a country waiting uh, for hope and trying to uh, find in faith a way of changing its own society. And what is the name of that cathedral in Mexico City? Santo Domingo. Santo Domingo. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Juan Viorjo. His book is The Guilty, a collection of short stories newly translated into English. Juan, I'll still never forget the, the majesty of coming into Mexico City from that airplane window and then the excitement of being in Mexico City and, and going into the underground and, and being immersed in the markets and swept away in the churches and enjoying all the 24-7 festival of life when you go to the right places in Mexico City. Can we finish up this conversation just with a, a, an image you have of Mexico City that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yes, what, what you say is very interesting because the grandeur and at the same time the mystery of Mexico City, when you land there by night, you see almost like a galaxy of lights and you can ask yourself, is it possible to live in such a place? We think sometimes that there's no purpose to this gigantic place, but maybe it's the secret map of the sky. Wow. Juan, this has really been fascinating. Thank you so much for having me here. 
Oye, vuelvo a comenzar, voy llegando a este lugar sin ti. Oye, vuelvo a comenzar sin saber cuándo estaré en el fin. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get technical help from Andrew Wakeling and Dana Bublitz. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our colleagues at KPLU Tacoma for studio help this week. Find out how you can be on the show with Rick and his guests in our next batch of recording sessions. Details are in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. Choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.